0: This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's Paw Pie or Real Texas Beef and Sweet Potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned Meat and fish or poultry is the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Oh, hey, this is not a normal episode. This is a bit of a bonus episode. This week, obviously, we have Foraging Ecology with Alexis Nicole Nelson is up. You can go back and listen to the Cicadology episode if you are inundated with cicadas. But I wanted to also in this feed this week, we're going to do something a little different. We wanted to share an episode of a podcast called Real Good. If you're like, what's real good? Never heard of it. You're about to, if you like. So, Real Good is a show that started last year at the beginning of COVID to highlight nonprofits doing work on the ground to help with the pandemic. But the big message of that whole first season was that most of the problems people are facing in COVID were not new when the pandemic hit. They're intersectional problems concerning race and class and gender and a lot more. So, the second season just came out and it's broadening out a bit to focus on the people fighting systemic issues that COVID highlighted. And guests this season talk about critical issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion, including recognizing implicit bias and the need for affordable housing and equal access to mental health services, all stuff that we care about. This episode is called Just Admitting It Isn't Enough with Linda Negron, who was a product director at Sync. I think you're going to like it more information on her in the intro. So yes, you're about to hear an episode of that podcast in our feed. And it is with Linda Negron, a program director at an anti-implicit bias training organization. So if you like what you hear, you can listen and subscribe to Real Good, the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, enjoy.
2: This is Real Good by US Bank, a podcast about helpers. It's okay to say that you've made mistakes in the past. Like it's okay
1: to accept someone else's feedback and be better. It would involve you acknowledging the fact that you are not perfect, that you are human.
2: I'm Faith Saley. This show was born out of the coronavirus crisis. In our efforts to understand where work needed to be done to help communities in need during the pandemic, we learned that the issues they were struggling with didn't crop up during COVID. They're long-standing concerns with roots in racial disparity, socioeconomic opportunity gaps, and so much more. We're here to give you a chance to meet those who are fighting against inequality. They're people who span a wide range of fields and enact very different missions, but one thing remains the same for everyone you're going to meet. They're helpers. They're doing real good. This week, our guest is Linda Negron, product director at Bias Sync. It's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, but people tend to favor people like them. When we can see part of ourselves, whether it's physically represented or a part of their lived experience that we recognize, we often see people like us favorably. And when I say we, I don't just mean you listening and me talking, I mean everyone, human beings in general. But when structures put in place favor one type of person over another, what happens then? Well, just look at the workplaces all across America. Structures favoring predominantly white and predominantly male workers have created boardrooms overrepresented by white men. And, and there's a trickle-down effect from there. Those people tend to put employees like them in position to be the next crop of leaders, keeping the wheel turning. In the corporate landscape today, of senior management jobs are held by black Americans, as opposed to the 13.2% of the population as a whole. Women make up more than half of our population and 47% of support positions, but only occupy 23% of management roles. There are certainly more stats we could throw at you, but I, I think you get it. But it doesn't have to be this way. Linda Negron's work, recognizing how our brains are wired and how to scientifically approach our own biases, is training business leaders how to create offices that look more like the world around us. Linda, when people ask you what you do, what do you say? Um, Well,
1: it depends on who it is because if it's a stranger on the street, I say I'm in tech uh and the, you know the eyes glaze over and they stop asking questions <laughs> but uh normally i say i'm uh i'm a director of product or head of product at a uh social enterprise startup so
2: what we're trying so all of that avoids the juicy word though i mean do you ever think of saying you know what i work in bias uh yes uh, we d- I do that
1: when we jump into like the actual details around it, but I find that unconscious bias um, has created so many like triggers for a lot of people, whether it's on the far left or the far right. Um, and myself being far yeah. left, it is very funny seeing how people that I agree with politically even get very riled up about uh, unconscious bias training in corporations, where you know it's this idea of. It's either unconscious bias training or the full-blown anti-racism, anti-sexism training that actually gets into the nitty-gritty details of the history and the uh, knowledge of institutional oppression and all of that. Whereas a lot of people tend to write, a lot of activists I've heard say that unconscious bias can be a cop-out because it's this fluffy, oh, everyone has it, so you know just be cognizant of it and don't get too hard on yourself for it. And they don't think it's going far enough. Um, my argument mm. is, if we don't start with unconscious bias, we're never going to get anywhere. So it.
2: So before we, I mean, there's so much to dig yeah. into here, and I and I want to find out how you came to mm-hmm. this. But first, because we're going to be using these words, can you tell me what how you define bias and how you define unconscious bias?
1: Exactly. Okay. So um,
2: bias is,
1: in layman's terms, it's this. So, the brain processes uh, something like five, uh, I don't want to actually say incorrect stats, but let's give it 500 bits of data per second. Um, but consciously, we that. can only process about 10 of them. And so, if the brain is co- processing, you know, let's say 500 bits a second, and you can only consciously handle 10 bits a second, the other you know, 490 is happening unconsciously in the back of your brain. So the human prefrontal cortex can only handle so much stimulus that's coming in at once uh, or stimuli. There's, you know, if I'm just looking at this screen, I'm thinking about what I'm saying. I'm looking at your facial expression. I'm, you know, hearing sounds in the background i like can hear my boyfriend making breakfast in the kitchen but all of these things some of them are getting processed unconsciously because it's not at the forefront of my mind what i'm specifically focusing on is my conversation with you so consciously i'm able to handle this conversation everything else that's coming in is being processed unconsciously in the back of the brain so i actually don't know how it's being processed my brain is just storing it away because that's how biologically we have Uh, developed to handle as much process. Because imagine if you tried to process every little thing that you were seeing or hearing all at once, it's impossible. You'd short circuit. Yeah, you would short circuit. So this is um, an evolutionary tactic to avoid short-circuiting pretty much. So So that's the unconscious mm -hmm. part. What's the bias part? How does that manifest? So your brain automatically starts creating shortcuts to not short-circuit. So if... Uh, An example from, you know, primordial times, like back in the day, historic, Um, if I knew that a specific kind of plant wasn't good for me, if I would eat it it, and I would, you know, either get poisoned or get really sick, I would just know that. So every time I would see it, I would think that's not a good plant, that I should not eat that plant. Mm -hmm. Um, Over time, you start to develop unconscious bias. Uh, unconscious bias to actually say, okay, well, I should avoid that plant because it looks exactly like the other plant. So therefore I shouldn't have that plant. And it's just this short, uh, it's just like what we call mental shortcuts. Again, some of, so much of it is unconscious that we're not even cogniz- like doing it cognitively. We're just doing it. Our brain is doing it for us we just know certain things like there it's a lot of people call it like the gut feeling like why did you avoid one option versus another you just say well that right. one I don't know why I avoided it but I'm assuming it's because it reminded me of this other thing which I know isn't good for me and that's just how evolutionary uh evolutionarily we developed uh to again not short circuit if there's so much stimulus coming yeah, it's efficient it. right? exactly so you just um it's again mental shortcuts to uh Avoid things that you know aren't good for you, or to go to things that are good for you and are or are familiar, or are familiar, right? yeah. But again, like yeah. uh, good and bad is funny because it's all relative. So what you think is yeah. good or bad is actually just based off of either prior experiences or experiences people you know have told you. It's not necessarily good or bad.
2: And so, how would you define the difference between bias and preference? Mm-hmm. So a lot of preference is bias. You, if it's unconscious or
1: you're not really thinking about it, um, it is, bi- like for me, I unconsciously always go towards chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream before I go to anything else. I like, that's a, that's a bias, but a preference is me saying I'm actively choosing to not have that like very cool new ice cream flavor and just going to chocolate chip cookie dough because chocolate chip cookie dough is what I like. I know it. I don't really love pistachio as a flavor so i'm just not going to go with it and
2: so that's it's interesting when you sort of break it down that way because i i think when we all hear bias mm-hmm. it 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 sounds very negative oh i don't i don't want to be biased i'm not biased um of, of course we'll we'll talk about with you how we're all biased um but bi- in some ways bias is a is a neutral term it's how we apply it right And and in the definition or the example you just gave about ice cream, um, preference has a kind of consciousness to Mm -hmm. it. Yes, is bias always unconscious? Um,
1: No, I think that bias can both be conscious and unconscious. So bias is just this idea that you're veering, you're taking a mental shortcut to. choose one thing over another or preference one thing over another based off of other information that you know. You're not you're working off of limited information, if that makes sense. So again, like what we were talking about the plants, theoretically, if you wanted to be truly unbiased, you would eat every single plant to determine if you could eat all of them. Is that possible? No, there's way too many you species live of very plants. Long. <laughs> uh, so you're going to use mental shortcuts to say that plant looks like the other one that made me really sick. I'm not going to do it. So then you go towards berries and, you know, wheatgrass and all of the other things you know you can eat and things that look like things you know you can not eat. So it's biases, uh, to put it succinctly, is to, as a mental shortcut based off of limited information that you already have to make a quick decision um, in a true scientific method, uh, fully, uh, I guess if you had all the time in the world you would find all of the information for every possible item. But again, as we've talked about, that's impossible for the human brain. We don't have the cognitive ability to do that.
2: Okay. So armed with these kind of working definitions mm-hmm. for this conversation, let's let's talk about you. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in New York. I was born in New York,
1: uh, lived in Puerto Rico for two years as a child so between the ages of two and four and then came back to New York and then I was a proud New Yorker ever since so my mother's Guatemalan and my father's Puerto Rican so we spent two years there with my family on his side um, and uh, I was in Queens originally then we went out to Long Island after we came back and uh, I was you know joking around because everyone always asked New York so you're from Manhattan. No, uh, in fact, most of Manhattan is actually transplants. I grew up where the real New Yorkers grow up, which is right outside of Manhattan. So, oh, I'm gonna get so much flack for that. I'm in Man-
2: <laughs> so I, I got to tell you, I'm in Manhattan for the last 17 years, and my husband always tells me, "You're not, you're not a real New Yorker." Yeah. <laughs> he says I won't be a real New Yorker until I walk over syringes in Central Park in the 70s. So, oh. I'll never get there. But I defer to you. You're a real New Yorker, um, having lived. An itinerant life, at least in your early youth. Mm -hmm. What kind of perspective did that give you with bias? What was your experience with bias growing up? Definitely.
1: So, I, as I said before, I was living in Puerto Rico up until the age of four. Um, I don't really have memories of before the age of two. So, uh, when we came back, it was just me and my mom living with two of my aunts uh, that are also Guatemalan. And I, from a really young age, I was very aware of what bias looked like. And uh, an example of that, like my, I don't know what the most severe case of bias I experienced as a kid or my mom did, but I'd remember the earliest. And it was when I was in kindergarten. Um, since I had just come from Puerto Rico, I didn't speak English, or if I did, it was not good. So my mom had heard that at the school district I was going to, if you couldn't speak English, they would automatically put you in ESL, which would mean that you were off track for the advanced classes. And they had known that I was, I know, at the risk of sounding like every millennial mom, I was gifted. <laughs> and I uh, had, you know, I was testing really well as much as you can test as a four- year old, but um, the teachers in Puerto Rico were telling my mom that like I was I should be fast tracked into like a, sp- a special program. But when we moved to New York, uh, she just knew that if I was put in an ESL class, that wouldn't be the case because all of the ESL classes are taught remedial content. Even if these children are really bright, just the sole fact that they don't speak English means that they're not set up for success Hmm. and they're set up with way less uh, resources, way less content, you know, like, and so much of those early years is whatever you can fit in a kid's head is going to set them up for the rest of their life. So my mom just told me don't speak to anyone <laughs> until you learn English. Don't let them
2: know. And I <laughs> knew that
1: I just couldn't speak to my teachers. So my teacher thought I was just like super shy. And I could kind of, you know, uh, kids learn languages really fast. So it only took me like less than a year to really pick up enough English to really understand what the other kids were saying and doing. So by first grade, I was fine. But I remember... Um, I only knew like two family friends in my class, so I would really only speak to them in Spanish, and I was just trying to figure out how to parse everything together and figure out where we were going, but it was a secret. I couldn't tell anyone that I didn't really know English well because if I got put in the other class or, you know, I got put in ESL, I wouldn't, they would just automatically pigeonhole me as someone who was quote unquote remedial, even though other kids that were in the ESL classes should have been allowed to experience The same amount of learning, but they weren't given those resources or those opportunities. So, from a really young age, how do
2: you think? Yeah, how how do you think that early experience shaped you?
1: It made me really aware of the fact that I had certain characteristics that other people looked down on, and I became aware of the fact that that was how life was just going to be for me a little bit um, for a while. It gave me a lot of drive, which I think that a lot of people tend to glorify, this idea of grit, that, you know, Hmm. here she is, like, uphill battle, like, showing the world that they're wrong, but I I don't necessarily, I think the psychological effects of it uh, are things that I'm still coping with, you know, in therapy, Um, and it's, it was really fascinating reflecting on this in recent years while I've been, you know, trying to write more and write more of a blog, and... Just really acknowledging the fact that it's from a really young age, I knew that I had certain characteristics that other people uh, made other people think that I wasn't as equipped or capable or as intelligent or as valuable as other people.
2: You know, that's such an interesting perspective, Linda, because what you're describing is this um, almost a, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but almost a... um, fair, justified resentment towards having to be resilient. Mm-hmm. You know, people could applaud you for that, but you're kind of like, why should I have had to work harder? Yeah. All right. So your teachers in Puerto Rico were right. You are gifted. <laughs> you, uh, you, you end up at Harvard. Um, and uh, what, was, what was that like? It was
1: the best of times and the worst of times for sure. Uh, just the traditional Harvard experience of having grown up as kind of a big fish in a little pond and having the very harsh reality check of, oh, I'm not the smartest person in the room anymore. That's awkward. And, you know, being surrounded by so many people who are just so brilliant. And if you're ever playing the comparison game, there will always be someone smarter, more well-adjusted, more social, more anything. So very early on in my college career, I had to rectify that comparison game of, Trying to just use everyone else's barometer for my own success and happiness, Um, so Mm. it catapulted me into a level of emotional intelligence that I had definitely never thought possible for myself earlier on. Because I was a very like STEM person, so you know bias and stereotypes about STEM people, where uh, we're a little emotional. Everyone thinks that we're a little like uh, unemotional or emotionally unavailable,
2: but I promise, some of us are very emotionally intelligent. Uh, you know, it was a uh, Harvard graduate called uh, Theodore Roosevelt who said about comparison, he says, comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. So it sounds like an important lesson that you were wise enough to teach yourself as a college student. Exactly. I mean, 67% of Harvard students come from the top 20% of wealth-owning households. and And it's also a school, I think it has like less than an 8% Latinx population. Yeah. Um, so how isolated did you feel and did you feel kind of like, um, hello, I'm the model minority? Yeah, it,
1: it was really isolating in the sense that, uh, a lot of people can't understand your experiences no matter how much they want to, they'll um, like, they'll listen, they'll sympathize, but there is a certain point in which, you know. In the same way that you can talk to one of your girlfriends going through a breakup because you've understood it and you've been there yourself, I, I wasn't able to do that for a certain, of like life events that were going that I was going through at the time. And uh, can you give me an example? Yeah, so I remember my freshman year. Uh, I really wanted to study abroad in Nairobi that summer. Uh, I was taking Swahili, uh, which is an African language. My freshman year. And that summer, the Swahili professor was conducting a study abroad trip. And I really wanted to go, but you know, I couldn't afford it. I was on full financial aid and it was extra money. So I was trying to figure out how to get a grant or anything like that. And so I was pretty convinced I was gonna get one specific grant and then it fell through. And I remember just being really upset. Um, uh, you know, just like Rightfully emotional at home, just like talking to one of my uh, college roommates, just you know, being upset that I wasn't going to be able to go. Which, also, sidebar, I actually ended up being able to go because I got a separate grant. So it ended up being a happy story. But I remember just talking to a friend who just goes, Oh, well, like, I'm sure that your parents will be able to cover it if you just talk to them that you lost the grant. And I go, what? (laughs) And she goes, no, I mean, it's really not that much money. It's only like a little under $10,000. And I just look at her and go, my mom makes $30,000 a year. I don't know how you think a third of her annual salary or wage will actually be able to cover this trip. And it was one of those very harsh realities for her where she realized, oh, wow, I did not realize that people make that little. And it was mm-hmm. one of those moments where I actually had to sit there and explain that to her. Explain mm-hmm. that not everyone has $10,000 lying around. In fact, most people in America don't. And uh, I think that it was its just little things like that where like, in ways that I would be able to talk to someone at home or even just someone in the real world here in L.A., where I am able to tell them, oh yeah, you know, like I couldn't afford this. You know, when you're an adult and you're working, you understand more that not people don't have ten thousand dollars lying around a lot, especially if they have kids. But in that environment of just privilege, it, I, a lot of those people had never been exposed to individuals who didn't have just that excess wealth.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a very. Um interesting and complicated experience at a place like Harvard or, or, or other Ivy League schools or, or places like that because there is this very privileged community that is also very, for the most part, I'm generalizing, that is also very progressive. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of light bulbs that still need to get turned on mm-hmm. um, for people who mean well but have literal, they may be very, very smart, but have literal ignorance, right? Like in the neutral t- sense of the word ignorance yeah. about other people's experiences. Yeah. Um, switching switching gears uh, from Harvard to Tinder. Um, so what did you do at Tinder? And we should say Tinder is a dating mm-hmm. app, right? And is it is Tinder the one that coined sort of swipe left, swipe right like put that into our cultural
1: lexicon. yeah they were the first of their kind they were the first dating app of, uh, well I think dating websites had existed before so match.com and eHarmony had were already in existence but they were the first app to casualize the online dating experience and make it more
2: accessible and take away the stigma so you decided to take the plunge a little leap of faith yeah um and you start at tinder and and was it part of your job to look for bias at Tinder, or was it something you just
1: couldn't miss? It's something you just can't miss. So I started as an engineer. Uh, I was working on, at first I worked a bit on the spam project. And uh, then I went on to work on features like uh, the group dating feature. So like, you could actually create groups and swipe on other groups. Um, I worked on one of the features called boost, which, uh, was like the top revenue grossing feature of Tinder in the year. And I, it started off, I want to say like maybe my last couple, um, my, my first big push about unconscious bias at Tinder was actually just getting unconscious bias training in the
2: company. That's interesting. So the, so your work with bias at Tinder started, uh, as an employee and the experience you had as an employee. um, But you also identified bias in Tinder's users in in how they chose to swipe. Is that right?
1: So once we started talking about unconscious bias and it became a prominent conversation that was happening, um, I started talking to, and I moved from back back-end engineering to data engineering. I remember talking to some of the individuals building the algorithm about, you know, things that they were finding. And the sociologist that had worked there, she was a staff sociologist. Some of her research had showed that um, specific, the people that got matched the least were um, black women and Asian men. And I remember asking, is that user preference or is that our fault? And they go, what are you talking about? And I go, well, is it user bias where this is happening on like a user level? And or is this actually something that our recommendation algorithm is perpetuating? And I remember just the look of confusion on the engineer's faces. is like, wait, we could possibly be perpetuating this. And it ended up not being the case. It ended up mo- like looking like it was more of like a user issue, like on a global scale. Um, but I remember just even asking the question, oh, is this actually like a user problem or an engineer problem? It was the first time yeah. they'd even asked that. And it became this wow. question of, oh wait, us—we could be perpetuating a problem. And I, uh,
2: so talking to the engine—that's re- such a powerful question. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, that's part of your life's work now—is—is is helping companies ask, wait, us—could we be part of the problem? Yeah. and not knowing it exactly. And yeah. so uh,
1: we talked about it, and you know, I know people that still work there now, and it's definitely been a question that they continue to ask themselves like oh i here's the problem is this our problem or is this someone like is this something that we can't control or is this something that we can control for and
2: and what do you what do you say about that as as someone you know you are you're a computer scientist it, it, how do companies need to look at this question um about whether it's the responsibility of platforms or businesses to counteract bias versus personal responsibility Mm -hmm. of their users.
1: Definitely. So I think
2: that corporate responsibility
1: can't happen before personal responsibility because corporations are the results of personal decisions. However, uh, so all it takes is a group of individuals at a corporation, especially the C-suite to say, we should review this we should look into it we should just ask ourselves if like if we have a problem and put in the resources to bring in some experts to figure out if there's a problem that's the first step and from there it is corporate responsibility to fix their problems in the sense that you know it's kind of this idea of like if we all do our part eventually like the wave will be big enough where we'll be able to combat anything but corporations and institutions they amplify existing human flaws because uh, yeah, like it is corporate responsibility over personal responsibility in my opinion to actually make the most impact, but it starts with personal
2: responsibility. That's right. Uh, uh, Why, why don't people ask themselves that? Like that question you just asked, Mm -hmm. am I part of the problem? Is this my fault? If, if every single person started asking that it, it would change everything. Yeah. Why do you think people don't ask themselves that? A variety of reasons. Uh I think that
1: well, first and foremost, specifically in America and I can speak to this on the American stance, we have this very deeply ingrained puritanical culture of being the city upon a hill. Uh being like it, Outside looking in, we have to be perfect. We like There is just no room for flaws. There's no room for imperfection. It's, you know, you are what you say. You say what you are. You hold strong. And that is what is good. And we really need to move past that. And we really need to push forward with this idea of it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to say that you've made mistakes in the past. Like, it's okay to accept someone else's feedback and be better. But I feel like we kind of get mm-hmm. stuck in this, I couldn't possibly be wrong. I couldn't possibly have made this mistake. And I feel like a lot of it tends to be to accept that you've made a mistake, to accept that you have potentially perpetuated uh, you know, oppressive institutions or have been biased yourself. It would involve you acknowledging the fact that you are not perfect, that you are human.
2: So, when someone is faced with the breaking news that he, she, or they um, have have made a mistake, have caused pain, or are biased, um, is is the justification or the defensiveness sometimes? Well, it's unconscious. I'm not. I'm not. How can I? I'm, I'm not in charge of that. What do you do with that response?
1: Definitely. So. That is, I think, why we've seen a lot of activists be against the idea of unconscious bias as a solution. Is because some people just go, "Well, it's unconscious, so it's not my fault, and I'm good to go," and that's not what we're looking for. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm good to yeah. go,
1: and so that's not what we—that's not what we're looking for. Uh, when it comes to unconscious bias, what we're looking for is this. It's twofold. It's the idea of catching yourself in the act and then also being able to accept the feedback for when you don't. And so if you catch yourself, like when you, if you're being mindful and you make, let's say you're thinking about who to promote or something like that, uh, you automatically think, well, this person's clearly the obvious choice of who I'm going to promote on my team. And you stop to think, well, why do I think that? And it's just like finding new ways to ask yourself the question of why do I think that? Another example that people really like is uh, we call it the network mapping activity. It's one of our micro learnings. Uh, It's this idea of reflecting on who you interact with like physically, well, not now because it's COVID, but reflecting on who you interact with uh, on a day-to-day basis and on a week-to-week basis and on a month-to-month basis and seeing what the actual breakdown of Hmm. people is and seeing, oh, wow, if I'm not getting exposed to people who are different than me, then of course I'm going to have biased thoughts because I never see those other people. And like, I don't have, you know, I'm not de-stereotyping in my mind. And it's just like going, you know, taking the active route of de- like removing the stereotypes of other you know ethnicities, other genders, other sexual orientations from your mind. And um, a really easy way to do this that one of our subject matter experts loves talking about is uh, specifically, let's use the, um, let's focus on uh, racial bias specifically for black people. Why don't you research black scientists and black uh, Professionals who have made incredible impacts and longstanding legacies in the world. Like, I if you know, you ask anyone, like, please give me an example of like a black individual who has made a tremendous social impact. Everyone says MLK. They go, Okay, anyone but MLK or Malcolm X, name one.
2: Right. And then you say name a scientist, and they say Neil deGrasse Tyson. Exactly. But there's there's just a whole, you know, there's a whole long list. That's exactly. Right. So yeah.
1: go through the list and actually just start researching it and this exposure. Actually helps. It's not a. It's not long lasting, but it will get you in the practice of. Okay, I actually need to start thinking of. Looking like uh, finding the people who are. Antithetical to the stereotypes that I've been told my whole life exist,
2: mm-hmm. and. So- seeking you have to become a seeker yes. so
1: it becomes it's this whole process of seeking and making seeking information seeking knowledge seeking the uh, knowledge of the other people's experiences part of your daily life and a habit and it sounds overwhelming but it really isn't once it becomes habit
2: you're now at a company called bias sync mm-hmm. so bias sync is a science based assessment mm-hmm. Uh, to combat unconscious bias. What does that mean? How can you be Mm science-based? So our, we're science-based through and through. So what we're
1: actually giving uh, companies is the first way to figure out the state of the state when it comes to diversity and inclusion. So before there hasn't been many ways to, you know, measure unconscious bias or, you know, uh, have a data driven approach to it outside of something like headcount and promotions, which are very long Hmm. feedback cycles that make it very difficult to actually assess how productive certain initiatives are because it's taking a really long you know, like headcount is something that like it takes a very long time to increase or make better or but
2: by by headcount you mean literally count how many quote unquote diverse employees a company has. Yeah, because that doesn't. You can have a bunch of people of different colors, but that doesn't mean there's no bias. Yeah, right?
1: and it doesn't mean that it's an inclusive environment, and it doesn't mean that it's actually that people are actually given the space to voice their opinions and that their
2: voices are equally right. heard. So, <clears throat> so how does science science help? Mm-hmm. And what do we mean by science here? Is this um is this a lot of math, a lot of a lot of sort of uh, algorithms? Yeah. So
1: um, our actual uh, LMS. So our we call it the baseline course that actually walks users through the introduction to unconscious bias and, you know, uh, describes two specific forms of bias that arise in the workplace. Uh, one of which is gender bias; the other, which is uh, racial bias. We specifically focus on black bias. Um, in the future, we'll um, address other, you know, the myriad of biases like ageism, bias against LGBTQ individuals, bias against. Uh, pregnant women specifically. So, like, there's so many different mm-hmm. kinds of biases that we want to address, that we're going to address. It's just a matter of not overloading our users with all of the information. Um, but in it, we also have a variety of assessments that we conduct. Two of which are unconscious bias assessments that actually measure uh, how much unconscious bias, roughly speaking, that you have towards a specific demographic from there the actual corporation depending on whether or not they consent into the data um, certain corporations do others don't we actually show an aggregate level of bias in the company to actually see where their gaps are and when we say how how do you do that uh really so (laughs) uh, how much do you know about the implicit association test Nothing. Okay. So the implicit association test is actually developed by um, a few psychologists at our alma mater. Uh, It started in the 90s and it's been, you know, put through the ringer in terms of actual validation and does this work, does this not, uh, for decades. And what we find now is that the group of academics that have worked on this like the general body of academics that have worked on unconscious bias have for the most part agreed that the unconscious bias assessment is valid in terms of understanding how much bias exists with for that person uh, for a specific demographic of people.
2: And so is this a is this a test <laughs> someone takes online? Yep, you
1: can um yes, you can take it online. So it's uh basically the idea is that we look at one like two categories of people and two attributes. So the example that I'll give is flowers and insects. So we're looking at flowers and insects and we're using good words and bad words. So the idea is to see whether or not you have an unconscious bias towards insects or flowers. And so we'll show you images of insects and flowers and you're supposed to rapidly match (laughs) At first, you go flowers, good insects, bad. So you match uh, flowers to the good words and uh, insects to bad words, and then you flip it. And then you do insects to good words and flowers to bad words. And it's actually in a variety. uh, So we measure unconscious bias based on how much longer it took you to correctly match good like uh, the good attributes with a specific image versus the bad attributes with a specific image. Because if you're, as we said before, bias is shortcuts.
2: So if you're- Yeah, it's you're quick to say a cockroach is creepy, but it's hard to say that a flower is stinky or something, exactly. right? Or creepy. Yeah.
1: And so again, what we're showing you here is just what your, the 95% of your subconscious is thinking. And- <clears throat> It's not measuring racism it's not measuring prejudice it's not measuring sexism we're not telling you that this is how prejudiced you are because again prejudice is pretty conscious prejudice is saying i actively dislike this group of people or i'm actively going to go out of my way to make sure that this other group of people does not have the opportunities that other people have that this group of people like is not like don't interact with people that look like me that's prejudice and that's not what we're measuring. What we're measuring is unconscious bias to show you that you are human. We have been taught these things since birth. These are institutionalized in the media we consume to the places that we're allowed to live. And so- Mm -hmm.
2: So. So does Bias sync go into a company and help it engage its employees in taking these empirical kinds of tests? So they're embedded in the
1: baseline assessment. So uh, it's a baseline course. So it's an introduction to unconscious bias with the actual uh, assessments integrated into it. And so then from there, every month... <clears throat> we uh, are following it. It's about a two-year contract. We uh, give users micro-learnings. So little tips and tricks like what I was telling you earlier um, to help mitigate the negative impact of unconscious bias. So we're human. We're never actually going to fully get rid of bias. And actually, like bias, we show companies where their pain points are and where they need to focus on. But we can mitigate its negative effects and we can... Work to create processes that prevent bias from affecting others,
2: so that we can. Create let's a talk more inclusive... about those. Neg- yeah. Let us tell me about those negative effects. It's easy to say, "Oh yeah, gosh, let's combat implicit bias," mm-hmm. but what what role does bias have in in co- in corporate hierarchy and and then in a sort of corporate culture and then in uh, culture at large? Yeah. So the easiest way to distill it down is that you both
1: hire and promote people that remind you of you, if all things even. All things, like no processes in place. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And why is that bad?
1: If what you're looking for is someone who's like you in the sense that you know you're hardworking, so you want someone who's hardworking. If you know you're a really good team player and you want someone else who's a good team player, there's nothing wrong with that absolutely nothing wrong than having someone who matches your personality in the sense that like, you know that you've had the skill sets to be a great employee to get to the point where you've been promoted. So you want to hire other people that are like you to also match those attributes. The issue falls when you automatically assign unconsciously your attributes to people that look like you. And you know, if you yourself. And assume
2: that someone who doesn't look like you. Doesn't have those attributes. Won't have.
1: Exactly. Right. So it's not the issue that, you know, Faith, you're intelligent. You are, you know, a powerhouse in the podcast world. You want to hire someone else who reminds you of you in that sense. The issue is if you have a team, you're managing a team and you automatically only veer towards the people that remind you of you in the sense that like unconsciously, do they remind you of you because you look the same? Or do they remind you of you because uh, they're familiar? It's a familiar face, like a face that you grew up with. And like she reminds me exactly mm-hmm. of my best friend from childhood. But did you grow up in an environment that only
2: had a specific kind of person? So an- wouldn't another deleterious effect of of unconscious bias be a lack of growth for a company because you're not getting all sorts of new experiences and ideas that come from having diversity.
1: A lot of people tend to think that uh, the negative impacts of unconscious bias are, you know, quote unquote, purely ethical, but they actually have financial and monetary consequences as well. We're talking, there are a lot of estimates, I think Gallup estimates that we lose billions a year based off of I might This might be a wrong statistic, actually. I should look that up. But Gehella estimates we lose a lot of money a year um, based off of unconscious bias because we actually, it's this idea of, you know, that whole joke, uh, or not joke, you've probably experienced this as well, of like, you'll say something in a boardroom, no one hears it, a man says it because he thought he thought it, but like you had said it literally five minutes prior. Well, he's brilliant. And he's brilliant. Right. And that's his yeah. idea. And that's amazing. The problem of female, like, of people's voices not being heard or being appreciated, like these very credible and talented individuals that you're clearly hiring for your company, we're not listening to their perspectives or their opinions. And so that loss of idea, that loss of creativity actually creates a negative financial impact because then you're literally just paying people that you're not listening to. It's
2: <laughs> wow. When you put it that way, that's kind of amazing. Yeah,
1: and we're also looking at like um, people who don't feel included or don't feel heard much less likely to work hard. So yeah, um, you're actually yeah. talking about at that point loss of productivity. And then at another layer, we're talking about um, just a complete loss of professional development. Like, what if the woman that you're not listening to in the meeting? could have been the next Elon Musk. But you weren't listening to her. And therefore, she wasn't given the opportunity. And therefore, she wasn't allowed to prove herself. And therefore, she wasn't able to get the financial backing of her company. And then she wasn't able to create gas-free emission cars. Like, we we're talking about just loss of productivity, loss of creativity, loss of innovation, because people just aren't listening to good ideas because of their bias. Your inability to mitigate your bias and quiet that voice actually leads to a loss of productivity and financial success for you.
2: I am, you've, this is one of those amazing conversations that has taught me so much, but has also left me with more questions and I mean the good kinds of questions like the questions to ask to ask myself and to ask the people around me and I'm really really grateful and you're great at what you do thank you (laughs) try my best The makeup of our workforces often starts at human resources. In order to create a more diverse workforce, we need a more diverse pool of applicants. HR is often at the top of that funnel, and the HR team at U.S. Bank is constantly looking to give more people more opportunities. To get a better sense of how they're confronting systemic and individual bias, we spoke to US Bank's Greg Cunningham and LCO Barcelos right at the outset of LCO's tenure at the bank. We learned a lot about why confronting bias matters, and we also got a sense of what it really looks like to be on the receiving end of it. What is the mission of your job at Human Resources?
3: You know, it's um, there. There's so so many ways to look at this faith. I, I I think first and foremost, we are here to help the business achieve its priorities and its strategy through talent, right? So that's the first element of how do we enable the business through talent. And in parallel to that, it's being the voice of the employee. It's understanding the culture, being the voice of the culture. So I often tell my team we are we are stewards of the culture, right? Stewards of the team but with the purpose of enabling business success through people or through talent.
2: You know, well, you know why you're here. We're gonna talk about diversity and we're gonna talk about implicit bias, which I love this topic. It's so fascinating. There's 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 so much to understand. Um, and with that in mind, would you say that being in HR is more challenging than ever before When when these, I mean, I imagine that, you know, HR, personnel, HR officers of uh, 40 years ago, were not having these discussions, right?
3: That's right. Uh, hard to say, that was way before my time, Faith, but uh, I would say um, it, it is a challenging time to be uh, a head of HR, or as I said, the steward of culture, steward of talent, and, and really, but it's challenging, but it's exciting, right? It's It's a really, it's a fantastic time for someone that has aspired to be an HR leader, or be in human resources, uh, it's such an exciting time because talent really matters and culture really matters. And, and we see this now more than ever.
2: What would you say is the state? And I invite, I invite both of you to chime in. What would you say is the state of diversity in corporate America?
3: Oh boy, that's, that's a loaded question, right? I mean, it's, uh, and Greg out. you're the expert here as well, but I would say it's, in some ways it's, it's in discovery because I think companies who thought that they had it had it figured out or uh, figuring out that they actually didn't have it figured out. Uh, it's evolving because uh, a voice is being found and I find that absolutely beautiful, right? Where there's a voice that's now growing uh, across our, our workforces, across corporate America. And we have to listen and we have to pay attention to that voice. And so it's it's ever evolving
2: you know, Greg, um, you've written that so many organizations hire for diversity, but manage to assimilation. Yes. So I, I think that speaks to what LCO was just saying, right? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it. it th- this is not just hiring people of different colors. It's more than that.
4: Every organization has diversity faith. Diversity are, are, are multiple dimensions of identity. Um, that we all have. And so diversity is is not where the real opportunity is. The opportunity is around inclusion. Inclusion's the verb. And, you know, that statement I made is one that I've carried with me for a a really long time because of my own experiences in uh, previous organizations. Um, You know, companies do hire for diversity. And I think every organization has diversity statements or some commitment around diversity. Um, but oftentimes, what happens is, you know, people once once in the organization, they aren't always in an environment that truly understands how to get the best out of their talents, how to how to cultivate the skills and and as I like to say, their superpower um, in the organization. We all want to be part of a team where we're contributing um, and adding value to um, to our full capacity. And that's how teams and organizations win. When every single person in on the team, when the entire organization is sort of moving together around common objectives and everybody's contributing in meaningful ways, that's what inclusion looks like. And so this notion of uh, assimilation, I think, has been something that has really hampered um, diversity and inclusion efforts from making real change in corporate America that we've all wanted to see.
2: And And when you don't have that real change... Do you all have personal experiences with companies not performing at their best, not even knowing how good they could be if they truly had diversity and inclusion and took a look at bias?
4: You you see it every day. I mean, you know, I, I think this this awakening that companies have had over the last six months is too long in coming. You know, I think more often we've seen examples of you know certain industries and individual organizations who have um, who have valued and certainly benefited from it, um, but more importantly, faith. There have been studies and there's um, real empirical data that um, has been studied over a series of years by McKinsey and others that have shown that diverse organizations, those companies that are more diverse at the board and the senior executive level, actually perform better. Um, financially, in terms of, you know, uh, earnings before interest and taxes, and those companies that have gender diversity perform, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 percent better. Those companies that have ethnic diversity perform anywhere from 25 to 30 percent better. There's real data and studies that have been done on it, and so I think this notion of, you know, companies that don't embrace it are doing it at their own peril, um, and are missing out on real opportunities to grow overall.
2: So, so both of you um, are dedicated to making sure people feel included and that their voices matter. So would you say that becoming aware of implicit bias and having anti-bias training within your company is a tool to achieve those goals of having people feel included and that their voices matter? Is that where implicit bi- bias awareness comes in?
4: Yeah, I do. I think it's yes. I, the short answer is yes, and I, which is why uh, we've made anti-bias training mandatory for every single employee in our organization. Every employee in our organization takes anti-bias training. Um, but not only do they take anti-bias training, they take cultural identity training. And so we go a step further with our mandatory training to make sure that um, there's not just, um, it's not just, it's not enough to just be aware of um, the importance of uh, anti-bias, um, but you have to understand the importance that identity plays into the question you asked before um, about why women and minorities have been shut out of uh, many of the leadership opportunities. Um, but what's also, you know, critical in uh, in this conversation, faith around um, bias, um, is the notion that we have to have different. Um, different expectations around what leadership looks like in our organization. Um, The uh, the awareness is one thing, um, but to take action on it um, is is vitally important um, because we're missing out on opportunities to grow the pie for for everybody in the organization. And leaders have to have new definitions around what leadership looks like. That's why people of color and women have been shut out of um, C-suites and organizations for so long is because they weren't viewed as leaders. They weren't viewed as Mm -hmm. having leadership qualities. And the ways in which they demonstrated skills and talents um, weren't valued in the same way, back to the point Elsie was making about everybody's voice matters. And so I think what's happening is we're having different conversations now around how people contribute in differential ways and what leadership looks like. And there's not one way to lead. There's multiple ways of, of, of leading that actually drive better outcomes even than what we've seen to this point.
2: LCO, I have to ask you, you're, you're 10 weeks on the job. Have you had your, your implicit bias training? Was it recent?
3: I have. I've gone through my, my training and- uh, Did you
2: do okay? I'm crossing my <laughs> I, I did okay.
3: I did okay, Ew. but it's- it's an ever-evolving story, Faith. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean,
2: honestly, did you did you learn something? Like when you went through did you have an uncomfortable moment or, or a realization that you didn't know before?
3: Um, there is, you know, with implicit bias, to me, it, it, it is always a learning opportunity, right? So for sure, as I went through the training, you, you learn two or three new things. Um, I, I can share can a brief share- story. Yeah. a brief story with you because um, it's implicit bias is, is so near and dear to me. I, I, I went through a personal experience with this in my career. I grew up in Brazil, went to school in Brazil, and after college came to, to the U.S. And along my career journey, I won't mention the company's name, it would be embarrassing to them. But along my career, I decided to make career change and uh, decided to um, Back in the 90s, there used to be this thing called job fairs that we would all go to and all the employers were there, right? <laughs> and I um, I went to this job fair and passed out likely about 50 resumes uh, across all the different job booths. And with a name like Elcio Barcelos, I didn't think anything about it. I just, I didn't think people would think anything differently for me as a potential candidate. And um, when it was all said and done, Faith, I probably had about four or five callbacks at most out of 50 or so that I had passed out. Hmm. So then I got the, the little pamphlet from the job fair. And I said, I don't know why I thought about it. I Honestly, I wasn't aware of, of any type of implicit bias at that point. But I thought, what if I were to change my name? And hmm. my, my full name, you asked me earlier, I said, Elcio Barcelos. My full name is actually Elcio Robert Thomas Barcelos. So I said, yeah. I'm not going to really lie. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop Bobby the Elcio. <laughs> I'll drop the Elsio, make it an E. I'll drop the Barcelos and and go by E. Robert Thomas.
2: Yeah. Mm. And then what happened?
3: But the same resume. Nothing changed on the resume, but it was now I was E. Robert Thomas. So I mailed the resume out to all the part, all employees that were on the, on the fair that I had dropped my resume to. And I probably got about 35 or so callbacks from, from that. Oh now, interestingly gosh. enough, I did land a job. And the company <laughs> that I landed the job, uh, offered me offered a job to E. Robert Thomas, which was a big problem when I got my first paycheck because my account was Alceu Barcelos. <laughs> the day that I was supposed to start, literally the day I was supposed to start, I received one of those automatic emails or or mess emails, right? It was a letter in the mail at the time that said, "Thank you, Alceu Barcelos, for applying. We don't have an opportunity for you right now, and wow. and but I appreciate your application." But the same day, the same day I was supposed to start, as one, I got a decline from the other, wow. right? So. So when, when you say, is the training a tool that we have? A training is a tool that we have, but it has to be much more than a tool. It has to be a way of life. It has to be something that we are open to adjusting and learning and applying. But it boils down to, am I listening? Am I paying attention to my surroundings? Do I know what matters to one, what matters to the other? Am I able to look through those things? And look, you can have the, right, it's, you can have the most impactful experience, and then tomorrow you still learn something new
2: you know, just on a broader scale, what do you think the consequences are of not addressing bias in the workplace? There are not, you know, not every big company in America is doing what you're doing. What are, what are the consequences of this?
3: I, you know, it's to ignore it is to ignore the obvious. And, and unfortunately there are companies that still do ignore it. And, uh, and, and a quick summary I, I was meeting with a number of h uh, heads of hr recently in a in a little roundtable session just talking amongst ourselves trying to figure out how to manage through covid and social unrest and all these things and one of my my peers said wow it's like we just had this trifecta right a tough year financially and we just had this this uh, covid thing hit us and now social unrest is hitting us and and my reply was but social unrest may be active now, but it's not just hitting you. This is something that's been real for a long time. And so to ignore, is it, it's, it's to not be realistic, to know that the world is evolving around you. And that's that voice I mentioned earlier. There is a voice that is growing in strength, and we need to listen to that voice. It, it really matters to listen to that voice.
2: Thanks so much for listening to Real Good by U.S. Bank. If you like what you heard, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.
0: So listen to smart podcasts to learn important things. I hope you like that episode of Real Good. And obviously, on Tuesday, we'll be back with a brand new episode. I might even do a little bonus field trip one from the road because I'm going to Cicada Country, Ohio. I'm going to check out these bugs. Okay. Also, I accidentally dyed my hair a color I did not intend to, and now it matches my mustard sweater perfectly. I don't know what I'm going to do about it. Okay. Bye-bye.
4: After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Brick responsibly. Beer reported by Crown & Chicago, Illinois.
1: Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue <laughs>